0: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments
1: or questions to 347-324-5552.
0: ...pension association at the turn of the 20th century. My face is black, is true turned into a game changer for me and many others because it put me on the trail to investigate the significance and the importance of reparations demands among African Americans. And, and in the current issue of the journey, uh, Journal of African American History, I, I have a commentary calling for the creation of a reparation superfund to try to deal with the problems of dropping out, incarceration, and police violence against African American children and youth. So the the, reparation, the information on the reparation superfund is in the current issue of the Journal of African American History. In 2009... <laughs> the gifts of black folk the gifts of black folk many, many and, and, and have been important throughout our history and that part of that gift and one of those most important aspects of that gift is the scholar activist tradition and we are lucky today to have the premier exemplar of the scholar activist tradition in African American in African-American history and American history, Dr. Mary Frances Berry.
2: Let me thank you and say that now that I have heard VP's introduction and I have heard the various um, occasion remarks made by various people up here, I don't have anything to say. And. Not only do I not have anything to say, there's no light up here so I can't see what I'm supposed to be looking at. So I either have to just talk to you without it, or go around like this and try to see what I was going to say, or I can just fake it, you know, and say something. But let me tell you this, so I'll just talk to you. Uh, Let me just say that... You can have your glasses back. Uh, Let me just say that I am very pleased that I was asked to speak here. It's always dangerous uh, for anyone to ask me to speak uh, because I never know what I'm going to say, and they don't know what I'm going to say. And at my alma mater, uh, Howard University, when I was when I was at Uh, H-E-W, Running Education, uh, one time they called me up and said they wanted to give me an honorary degree, and I said, well, that's fine, you know, I'll come to commencement, get the honorary degree, but am I speaking? They said, oh, no, never. We know you too well. And then I went, and I got the honorary degree, and then when uh, a year later... Uh, one of the high-muckety-mucks in government uh, who was supposed to speak at commencement passed away, something happened, and they didn't have a speaker. So they asked Joe Califano, who was running HEW at the time, to speak. And on the day he was to speak, Joe couldn't come, so Joe sent me. (laughs) And I spoke. And uh, earth shook, but... Everybody was okay uh, in the end, and I still don't know what I said. But let me just tell you this, that and and I love Asala because it's home. Uh, John O. Franklin and I used to talk all the time about how, you know, there's that Walt Whitman poem about I have learned that to be with those I like is enough. (laughs) And, um, yes, to be with those I like is enough. And so all that stuff that VP told you about me doing this and doing that and doing whatever to whatever, uh, being with those I like. You know, I wouldn't miss a Sala a meeting or anything for anything. And being with you and seeing all you here today is reinforcing for me and looking at all those women, the legacy award winners who I congratulate. Um, Some of them I knew, like Naomi Maget, who is a wonderful poet. And if you haven't read any of her stuff, you should. And I've known her since I was in Michigan. And others I didn't, but was excited to hear about. And Mrs. Hooker, who was with John Hope, and who was from, you'd just go around with him talking about the Tulsa riots. Um, so that all of that made me feel really good and to make me, uh, uh, for once, uh, feel a little bit elated. And then I um, thought, well, that makes me feel good, but I don't feel that good. (laughs) Because um, some people like to celebrate, and this year we have all those landmarks that we can celebrate that somebody listed uh, before. But I'm not in a celebratory mood. I always, and at this stage in my life, I wish I could do otherwise, but I cannot. I always think not of what we've already done or what I've already done, but what else there is to do. And um, and coming off a month in which I went around missing Martin very much and Coretta, and missing Rosa Parks very much, because I had the great pleasure of spending lots of time with Coretta in those years after Martin was assassinated, all the way up to the end. And spending time with Rosa Parks and getting to know her in those years after she sat down on the bus, which is what some people think she that's all she did but it's not true, or that all Coretta did was to be the widow, Um, but she was more than that. And so I've spent a month going around feeling missing them and thinking about them and thinking about the movement and all the people and all that's left to be done. So while other people feel celebratory, I've tried to stay away from them when they're in that mood because they don't understand why I'm not celebrating. I can commemorate, yes, and that's what I'm doing today. And I can remember, and I can be motivated. But we got too much work to do to spend too much time (laughs) celebrating. Our history, our history, you know, I could have just gotten up here and given you a straightforward history of where we were and where we came from, and I could tell you about the Emancipation Proclamation not being uh, the end of it and not really abolishing slavery, which most of us who do our history know, there's going to be a 13th Amendment uh, anniversary coming up. And it's going to be interesting to see how many people want to celebrate that. Uh, And some people don't even know that the 13th Amendment was what abolished slavery, but we in Asala know that and ought to know that. Uh, The Emancipation Proclamation was important, but Lincoln was not an abolitionist, Uh, and the issue was to free, uh, was to save the Union. And it was all those folks before that, the resistance of African Americans who were called blacks and slaves and whatever else we were called in the N-word in those days, the resistance, not just the uh, rebellions that we can talk about, and Nat Turner, and uh, Denmark Vesey, and this and that, but the day-to-day resistance to slavery that the Bowers write about in an old article in the Journal of Negro History that you ought to read sometime when you're at the beach. Uh, but the the, the the day-to-day resistance uh, to slavery And the people who um, escaped, yes, the Underground Railroad, there's Henry Box Brown and the crafts and the cross-dressing and all those stories about what people did. And, of course, Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and and others uh, who are part of that long history of resistance. And the blacks who fought in the Revolution and in the various wars with Indians and in between uh, the Civil War. And it was black soldiers and black people who made it necessary for Lincoln. It was necessary, he says it in the Emancipation Proclamation, it is a fit and necessary war measure. My message is that we ought to learn from the experience with the Emancipation Proclamation how to make ourselves necessary, how to make responding to us necessary. They had a manpower shortage. They had folks who uh were skedaddling and running away, white guys, to Canada to keep them fighting in the war. They had copperheads and rebels who didn't want in the north who didn't want to fight in the war. And they had blacks who were running away to the Union line and they had generals who were using them militarily before the Emancipation Proclamation. It was a fit and necessary. War, measure. And so what we do all those years after uh, Lincoln and uh, the movie, and uh, it's just a movie, so don't get too upset, Uh, but some people don't know anything except what they see in the movie. Um, And it's okay for some people not to know their history, but if we don't know ours, the real history, not the made-up pieces, the painful parts, we can't get anywhere because we don't know how we got where we are. I mean, that's just true. Somebody said that something like that earlier. But, in case, but the point is that once the Civil War was over, we spent years trying to figure out how to make it necessary to respond to our problems. We tried everything in those years. We tried being respectable. We tried dressing properly and looking respectable all the time, even if we went to the store. We tried being the talented tenth and citing the first, the first black to do this, and the first Negro to do that, and the first one to get a Ph.D., and the first one to be able to read, and the first one to wear a suit or whatever, <laughs> so that people would say, look at them. They can just be just like everybody else, we thought. We thought. Well, that'll make them think that it's necessary to respond to what we're asking them for, that they don't suppress us and Jim Crow us and abuse us and lynch us and do all these things. Some people tried other things. They tried being bad-ass Negroes. Maybe that'll make them respect us, the bad Negro. And then they'd be scared, and then everything would be okay. We tried voting. We asked for land. They didn't give it to us. We got tried voting, and then they took that away. They gave us that, and then they took it away. Okay, We tried going to court and litigating, and the court slammed the door. We tried everything we could think of, and there's some things I ain't even thought of that we thought of uh, to try. And it didn't work because it didn't seem necessary to respond to us. And some people passed. Some might have been in your family. They decided to pass for white, you know, I'm writing my latest book is about some people who stayed in Louisiana and passed in Louisiana moved to a different side of town. (laughs) And they would sneak back in the church when Mama died to sit in the back row and mourn and then sneak out. But anyway, and some of them went to California and then sneaked back on the day that Mama died and sneaked in the back door and left and whatever. But some people tried that. Uh, other people uh, just stayed the Great Migration. They came to the north, what, looking for the promised land. And some folks found it and some didn't. And some ended up eventually ghettoized and poor and on drugs and thinking that to be respectable, not like the old days being respectable, is to pop somebody one if they bothers you because they didn't do right, and so we got all these problems uh, that exist. But people stayed in the south, too. Everybody talks about the Great Migration. So this thing I'm writing about is about the people who stayed in the South. And what happened with the people who stayed in the South, and some of them were your relatives and mine, they ended up being the people who were the backbone at the time that the Civil Rights Movement started, they and their children. Okay? They were still there. And they made it necessary. They made it necessary. What the Civil Rights Movement was about was making it necessary to respond. And it became necessary. Now, there's a little story to tell you about that, which is detailed in one of these books I have out here to sign when this is over, if anybody wants one. That uh, is the the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation in 1963, okay? We learn something about thinking somebody's your friend when they're not, okay? Martin Luther King thought that John Kennedy, my God, John Kennedy from Massachusetts, oh boy, asked him to issue another Emancipation Proclamation, a second one, committing himself to freedom for the free in 1963. And so he asked John Kennedy to issue a second Emancipation Proclamation. And Coretta did not know until I told her, because I looked in the White House files for this book, the thing I wrote in this book on the Civil Rights Commission, what happened? That he decided with his White House staff to not issue an emancipating proclamation because he didn't want to upset the racists, um, some of whom were in the Senate of the United States, uh, Democrats running committees, and that uh, they should have a big celebration at the White House and invite every person who was black whose name had been mentioned in the media at least once, without being in jail, okay, for some crime, and have them come to the White House and to do it on Lincoln's birthday. We know, of course, that Lincoln's birthday is in uh, February, but they said, no, that won't work because the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't in February. He said, well, we'll call it a joint kind of celebration, have it in January. But we'll invite all of these people. And the Republicans will be wanting to have a celebration too, since Lincoln was a Republican. But if we invite every Negro, they won't have any Negroes left (laughs) to invite to their celebration. And what will we do at the celebration? The staff came up with an idea. We will have a historian write a book about freedom has come to the free and issue it at this celebration. And who should we get? Let's get a Negro to write it. And guess which Negro they got? John Hope Franklin, who was in the news because he had become president of Brooklyn College, and he was one of the first Negroes to do this and the first Negro to do that, okay? And so John Hope wrote this diligently, got some historians together, wrote this thing, Freedom to the Free, about the real story of our travails and what had happened to us, and gave it to them. And they said, we can't publish this. <laughs> this, 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 this is not right. So they called in some people from the Civil Rights Commission who thought that since Kennedy was from Massachusetts and he was a great liberal and a great hero, he therefore was doing the right thing, and he told them, why don't you revise this a little bit for me? Uh, And so they touched it up around the edges for him. And then they had the celebration, and John Hope said, I'm not coming, and he didn't. And Barton said, I'm not coming. I'll be nowhere near that place on that day. And they didn't come. Now, the lesson from that is don't assume that somebody's your friend and that you can trust them and that they're going to do whatever's right just because of either where they're from or whatever or the rep you read about in the paper or whatever. But that was the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. But what Martin did was he went out. He hadn't made it necessary for JFK to do anything, he hadn't done anything then. What they had to do was make it necessary. And the folks who made it necessary, who were they? Freedom Riders and Diane Nash and James Meredith and you call the roll, all of them, they made it necessary. And then came the March on Washington. And what I was thinking about and what I talked about in the uh, last month about Martin and about Rosa Parks was how if they were the people, were not the people that we hear about, the meek, mild, Religious Martin who loved everybody and who just wanted, had a dream. Or Rosa who just sat down on the bus because her feet were tired, you know. If they hadn't been those people of myth, we wouldn't have stamps, okay? You think about what I'm saying. There'd be no stamps. There'd be no memorial for Martin at, down on the mall. If the real Martin Luther King... The guy who breathed fire and was anti-militarist, okay, and who believed that those who will give up all their freedom uh, for the sake of a little security uh, don't deserve either, and uh, if a man won't die for something, he ain't fit to live. Uh, That Martin Luther King wouldn't be down there on the mall. Or the Martin Luther King of the March on Washington and the bounce check instead of the I Have a Dream. And some of you might have been at the March on Washington, or at least you heard about it or read about it, and where Martin said what he's preached many times, we come to the nation capital to cash a check. It'll give us freedom and justice on demand. Because Mary Haley Jackson leaned over and said, Martin, talk about the check. Uh, But what you hear about him is his dream, and his dream got him memorial on the mall. His real stuff got him where we are, okay? So the thing is that there's a difference between the history of what brought you where you are and the way people go around talking about whatever it is that got you there because they feel, what, comfortable. Now, the other lesson from that is I guess it's okay to be mythical because it's symbolic and it's good, but if you don't make yourself necessary, uh, you won't get social change. So now what I come to is this. Martin used to say that what you needed to do was to comfort the afflicted, and he believed in afflicting the comfortable. And I think when we are in a celebratory mood, we get too comfortable. And I can't ever be comfortable. If I speak words of celebration and about how great everything is and how wonderful and happy I am, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. And I cannot speak. And I cannot sleep. And I walk the floor all night. One time, the Wall Street Journal published an article and congratulated me for something I had done. I knew I was wrong the minute they said it. I stayed up all day, all night, praying, trying to figure out what I had done wrong <laughs> until I figured it out and went back and changed it. So I'm here to tell you that here's the thing that we ought to do. Some people think that the civil rights movement, this is the part where y'all are going to run me out of the building. Some people think that the civil rights movement, that the goal of the civil rights movement was to elect a black president. Okay? My civil rights movement was not about electing any particular person. Okay? My civil rights movement was about poverty and justice and the man father down and <laughs> lifting people up. Uh, and if, in, if on the way you elected somebody as president, well and good. Great. Fantastic. But that's not my civil rights movement, and it wasn't the goal of all those people who went to jail and people who died, okay, to make change in this country. That wasn't their goal. What they wanted was change. Now, if you look at the issues that beset us now and think about what we are not doing about them, as I say, run me out of here if you want to, what we're not doing about them, schools. We have permitted people to take over what happens to our children in the schools who don't have their best interests at heart. We have permitted people who don't know any better and who worry about their kids being educated properly to think that charters and vouchers will solve their problem. They will not. All the data show, data, data, data is uncomfortable, but it's there show that kids, all those problems we have in public schools, the dysfunction and all the problems that we could call out exist, still exist, and that the achievement for students is not any higher, that the main thing that happens is kids who are discipline problems are kicked out. Okay? They're not there. They are still dropped out or kicked out. And guess where they go when they're dropped out and kicked out. Where do they ultimately end up? In jail. You know that, and I know that. So don't tell me that you've solved our problem, and we let people do that. And some of us are complicit in this and help to make it appear that this is something that we're doing that's solving the problem. It came out the other week with a story in that Washington Post that tells lies all the time. But it had a story, and on television it was reinforced, about charter schools kicking out kids and how high the dropout rates are. And in New Orleans, where I spent a lot of time, they took over the schools with charters after Katrina came in and swooped in and took over the schools, uh, and we've let them do it. The main effect of all of that has been, one, to get rid of black teachers, okay, some of whom needed to be got rid of, but a whole lot of them didn't uh... and to now have all these kids who are not being educated any better than they were before and the parents don't know any better and we don't do anything about it that i can see anywhere those of us who are educated enough to know and to teach other people aren't doing a damn th- uh, doggone thing about it <laughs> the other thing is gentrification in this city and in cities all around this country the in- inner city is becoming gentrified and people are being pushed to a poor, out. Black churches are being pushed, out. We don't do a doggone thing about it. There's no movement to do anything about it. Nobody says anything about it. Forget, if you will, I won't even talk about jobs for our people. The jobs gap for black people has been higher than that for other people, Job, jobless rate for black people. For the last four years and more, all through Obama's presidency, and anytime anyone says anything about it, people criticize them. Tom Joyner get on the radio and call them names, and black people won't give them a cup of coffee, uh, and whatever happens because they point it out. And those of us who have jobs don't see it as our duty to say anything about those people who don't have them. Every president, I don't care if he's black, blue, green, white, whatever, needs to be pushed. Okay, <laughs> needs to be told, <laughs> needs to be reminded needs to have something said to them. And then the prison, the school-to-prison pipeline, poor Marion Wright Edelman is working herself to death, and everybody's reading Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. And if they're not reading it, they tell everybody that they're reading it. Uh, and nobody's doing anything about it. There's no movement to do anything about it. Now, I could go on and on, which I won't, And I probably have some other things written on this piece of paper about the issues that I think people should be uh, concerned about. But I tell you this. I believe that we have a duty to work for social change if we understand the history of our people and if we want the history to be brighter for our children and for our grandchildren and those who are coming along. And we should not be comfortable I won't be comfortable until, what, justice rolls down like mighty waters. I will not be comfortable, and I will not shut up. I mean, you can drag me away, but I'm not going to shut up. And I am not going to celebrate. Somebody asked me that I want to go and celebrate, you know, they're always asking me to go celebrate this and that and the other. But I don't do. What I do is work and think and try to do something. And I'm not asking you to do that all the time because a person cannot do that. But I do ask that you do something in the interest of social change. Think of something you can do every single day. And I don't even care if it's small. I've learned to be satisfied with incremental change. If you believe in praying, say a prayer. Whatever it is, you know, if you believe in helping to feed the hungry, do that, but not just on Thanksgiving. I mean, the hungry eat when it's not Thanksgiving. Uh, Find something that you can do because, in fact, Each what? Generation has to make its own dent in the wall of injustice. And if we do that, then the promise and reality that those people who did all that work in the past to make a brighter future will become a reality for our children and grandchildren. Thank you very much.
3: And thank you, Dr. Berry, and thank you for, for, for being enlightened and for being willing to share that with the rest of us and for giving us, I think, quite a bit to think about and, and for giving us a call to action. I think in a lot of ways. We appreciate that. And I want to ask Dr. Scott and Ms. Cyrus to come back to the podium to present Dr. Barry with her 2013 Living Legacy Award. Yeah. <laughs> I got a
2: living legacy. Okay, thank you. What, me? Gonna say what is he going to say? Say a few that. words only. <laughs>
1: All I'm going to say is this, we all have mentors, and mine is a guy named Arnold Mitchum. And in 1982, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, sitting in his office, he told me about a woman named Mary Frances Berry. And at the seat of my mentor, I listened to what he said, and for my entire career, I've understood that Mary Frances Berry was the woman in Washington, D.C., giving Ronald Reagan hell.
2: say is earlier the Qs, the Omegas, gave $10,000 to Asala. Now what I want to know is, where are my Kappa brothers? And where are my uh, Sigma brothers? And where are my Alpha brothers? Where are the a Where are you guys? You're going to let the Qs outdo you? I don't get it. Thank you, Dr. Berry. And as she said, we do have the books that Dr. Berry referred to. They'll be on sale here in the ballroom just as you leave. They are a perfect memento for this event and a perfect guest, a gift to those who could not make it. So we encourage your support on your way out. Thank you.
3: Now, as we move toward our closure this afternoon, I'm going to pick that up, and then I'm going to ask uh, that the raffle tickets be brought up for me, so that we can draw the raffle winners and the silent auction winners, and you do have to be here to win, so again, I'll ask for the raffle tickets to head this way, the bowl of raffle tickets. Uh, Quickly, so we've got a cash prize, $400 that we're raffling off, also an African ancestry genealogy kit and an Obama basket. Those are the items for the raffle. And then several items that you saw at the back of the room for the silent auction uh, that we'll run through as well. Okay. We'll wait. That'll come... In a moment, first, uh, let's ask Dr. Scott back up to the podium for the presentation to Dr. Alvin Thornton, Senior Advisor to President Sidney Rebeau from Howard University.
1: Dr. Thornton, boss, as you know I teach at Howard University, and Dr. Thornton has been the provost and many other things there, but it is an honor and a pleasure to give you a check for $2,000 for the Moreland Spingon Research Center, which is now headed up by Howard Dodson, so thank you for all you do for the association. Thank you, thank Thank you. you. Get back on the call. Let's talk. Okay.
3: All right. So we'll draw three tickets for the raffle first. Do you want to do that? You want to do that here or do it? Okay. Will Dr. Janet Sims-Wood, an Asala Life member and vice president for membership, come forward to make a presentation to Marion Rucker-Shamu, associate library director at Bowie State University.
2: long-time friend. Yes, indeed. On behalf of the Asala, we would like to present you with a check for $2,000 for all that you do over at Bowie State for us, and we really, really appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so very much for helping us preserve our history.
3: Okay, now for our raffle winners, just pull out your red raffle ticket. First, for the $400 cash prize, ticket number five six nine nine one two one. Congratulations! And you don't have to come up. I'll tell you, you can. The raffle uh, winners and the folks who win the silent auction, you need to go to the McKinley. Room. Write that down. You don't if you don't get there, you don't get the money. The McKinley room on the mezzanine level after we're done today to pick up your prizes. Congratulations. All right. Second, the African Ancestry Genealogy kit goes to five six nine nine one five six. One five six. No? All right. All right, the ticket that ends in number 135. Yes. Where? Congratulations. And then the Obama basket goes to ticket ending in number 354. 354. 354, congratulations, sir. Alright, the silent auction winners are as follows the art and books gift basket, Christina Palmer. Alright. The I Dream of Africa gift basket, Sabia Prince. Yes. <laughs> the travel ready gift basket, Nicole Willis. Armada 2 goes to A.D. Myers, the black and blue gift basket, Joan Hill, the Delta's Delight gift basket, Mildred Boyd, the Freedom's uh, Freedom Song gift basket, Bob Cordero. If you could stand up, I'll run quickly through these names again. Uh, Lastly, the Emancipation Gift Basket to Joanne Hill. Please stand up, Joanne Hill, Bob Cordero, Mildred Boyd, Joan Hill, A.D. Myers, Nicole Willis, Sabia Prince, and Christina Palmer. Please stand up so we can find you.
1: My you.